staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, the latest challenge to search teams at the collapsed condo in Surfside, Florida is Tropical Storm Elsa. As we go on air in Surfside, Florida, following the June 24th 12-story building collapse, thus far, 28 people have reportedly died. 11 injured, but 117 remain unaccounted for. But are environmental factors that possibly were connected to the collapse being properly investigated? The condo was on a barrier island. What are barrier islands and what environmental role do they play? What is the danger of rapid development on barrier islands? Our guest is environmental journalist Tina Gerdhardt and the first hurricane to hit the island of Barbados since 1955. Um, Hurricane Elsa hit Barbados just a few days ago. The island was pretty hard hit. Our guest is David Comision, Barbados' ambassador to the Caribbean community on CARICOM. And there is a prisoner hunger strike going on in Pennsylvania. What's going on? What are the demands? Our guest is Fariha Horaya, who is an organizer with the DC Mutual Aid Network, a collection of community organizations and individuals who pool their resources together to support each other. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. The World Health Organization is warning against what it calls a premature rush by governments around the world to lift COVID-19 restrictions. Dr. Michael Ryan of the WHO warned of a new wave of infections. All of the countries of the Americas, we still have nearly one million cases a week. One million a week. You know, it's not, it's, it, it isn't over. Um, uh, and the same in Europe. Uh, in the European region, we have half a million cases a week. It's not like this thing has gone away. So I sometimes have this sense that everyone thinks it's all over uh, and we're just getting on. And and to an extent, I understand the sentiment. I understand why people want to feel that way. Uh, but for a lot of the world, uh, unfortunately, this thing is only getting started. We just need to be a little more patient. Remember last summer where we had everything got good and then everyone kind of relaxed and then we kind of arrived in September or October and ended up in huge trouble. Well, I think that's where we're going again with a much more transmissible variant this time around. Public health officials in this country are worried that July 4th gatherings and increased travel will fuel a new spread of the coronavirus as the country continues to experience uneven vaccination rates. A preliminary study by Israel's health ministry says the Pfizer vaccine is less effective at preventing infection among fully vaccinated people by the Delta variant than previous strains. The preliminary study put the effectiveness of the vaccine at 64% in preventing infection by the Delta variant, but it is still very robust 93% at preventing serious illness and hospitalization. 
Details are emerging on how a gang believed to be based in Russia breached a software company in the largest such ransomware attack to date. The gang essentially used a tool that helps protect against malware to spread it globally. Thousands of organizations, largely firms that remotely manage the IT infrastructure of others, were infected in at least 17 countries in Friday's attack. Mary Sherman reports. The Russian-based cyber gang behind the recent breach of one of the world's largest meat producers now says it wants $70 million to end a ransomware attack against a company that provides remote services to hundreds of businesses and public agencies. Jamal Theodore is chair of privacy and data security with the National Association of Black Compliance and Risk Management Professionals. He says, unfortunately, these sorts of attacks are becoming common. People are starting to get used to these big uh, retailers being hacked and your credit card information being stolen. They're used to now a lot of ransomware stuff. That's not a good thing in terms of kind of lulling us to sleep a little bit. The Biden administration recently released an executive order to tackle cybersecurity, which includes security requirements for software vendors selling to the U.S. government. Theodore explains it will take months and even years to fully implement the standards. Government really has a lot of different uh, fronts that they're fighting on. They're trying to use their influence on the contractors and vendors to really affect all of the industry, which I think in, in some cases is a good thing. Sounds nice, but very hard to implement in some cases. In response to the new attack, President Biden said the U.S. would respond if a link to the Kremlin is discovered. For Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Mary Sherman. A ramped-up rescue effort at the collapsed condo building faced new threats from the weather as Tropical Storm Elsa began lashing Florida on a path that would mostly spare South Florida. Bands of heavy rain were expected in Surfside as Elsa strengthens today, possibly becoming a hurricane again before making landfall somewhere between Tampa Bay and Florida's Big Bend and crossing northern Florida. Search crews can work through rain, but lightning from unrelated thunderstorms have forced them to pause at times, and a garage area in the rubble has filled with water. The bodies of four more victims were discovered, raising the death toll to 28 people. Another 117 remain unaccounted for. The Canadian Armed Forces have joined the battle against nearly 200 wildfires blazing across British Columbia. Dozens of firefighters from eastern Canada also arrived to help. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation reported that two-thirds of the wildfires are classified as out of control and that nearly four dozen wildfires broke out in the last two days alone. Environmental justice activists are expressing outrage over an eight-year prison sentence handed down to 39-year-old Jessica Resnicek. She was sentenced for damaging valves and setting fire to construction equipment for the Dakota Access Pipeline that crosses Iowa and three other states. Resnicek was also ordered to pay nearly $3.2 million in restitution. The environmental justice group 350 Tacoma tweeted in response, quote, How many years do you think any fossil fuel CEO will serve for knowingly destroying our planet's climate? I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Elsa was the first hurricane to hit the island nation of Barbados since Hurricane Janet in 1955. The island is outside the chain 
island chain that are most under threat of hurricanes. But on Friday, July 2nd, Barbados was hit in Barbados. Over 1,100 people reported damaged houses, including 62 homes that completely collapsed. The government of Progressive Prime Minister Mia Motley has been working to secure and fund temporary housing for people amid the twin pandemics of climate change and COVID-19. Across the island nation, dozens of trees and power lines were totally destroyed. Numerous government buildings and ed educational facilities were damaged. Hundreds of Barbadians are still without power. Let us go to a just short clip now from the Miami Herald just to bring some of the sound of that hurricane. That was just a, a small taste of what the residents of Barbados lived through. Now, Elsa was the first hurricane of the Atlantic season and broke the record as one of the region's fastest moving hurricanes. Elsa's power dropped to tropical storm level. And on Saturday, June 3rd, it hit the southern coast of Haiti and the Dominican Republic, killing at least three people. The Caribbean Disaster Emergency Management Agency reported one death in St. Lucia. Meanwhile, a 15-year-old boy and a 75-year-old woman died on Saturday in the Dominican Republic after walls collapsed on them. Speeding across the Caribbean, the storm centered uh, southeast of Jamaica and moved northwest toward Florida, and it is now hitting the Florida Keys. A state of emergency has been declared in parts of Florida in anticipation of what is now Tropical Storm Elsa. I'd like to welcome our guest who is based in Barbados, David Comision, Barbados's ambassador to the Caribbean community known as CARICOM. He's also active in the Caribbean Pan-African Network. He's an attorney, writer, political activist. David Comision is the author of the 2013 book, it's the healing of the nation, the case for reparations in an era of recession and recolonization. He's also the author of Marching Down the Wide Streets of Tomorrow, Emancipation Essays and Speeches, published in 2008. David Comision, welcome. Thank you, Margaret. It's Thank a you, Margaret. pleasure to be here. Yeah, so David, first off, tell us how you are, how how your family, how you fared uh, during um, Hurricane Elsa. Well, you know, the song clip you just gave um, took me back um, to last Friday and um, my first experience of, of, a, of a hurricane. I did momentarily step outside to experience what you just played. Of course, I had to get back inside pretty quickly. Um, but no, my, my family is okay. Um, our, our biggest 
um, inconvenience was our loss of electricity and, and water. We only got back our water last night, and um, we got back our electricity uh, about a day, a day after the hurricane hit. So we, we are good. Uh, but the, the people in Barbados who have really been most affected are persons who inhabit what we call chattel houses. Chattel houses are small, relatively small wooden houses. And you said um, 62 were um, totally um, demolished. Well, the number is now up to 105. So 105 houses were totally wow. demolished. Uh, in addition to that, about 1,100 other homes were, were damaged, um, predominantly roof damage. Some homes lost their roofs completely. Others were um, substantially um, damaged. And, um, and that's, so that's what we are grappling with. Um, 603 yeah. households requiring accommodation, as, as you indicated. Barbados is a social democracy. We operate a welfare state. So government will take, you know, no Barbadian who needs shelter will, will, will lack shelter. So government has stepped in and um, has provided accommodation for those households um, whose, whose houses were either totally demolished or so badly damaged that um, people needed to be accommodated. So we are now in the repair and rebuilding phase. Right. And David, you know, hearing your description of me, first of all, the damage to chattel houses. David, I don't know if you know this, but I grew up in a chattel house in Lodge Road in, in Christchurch. And it was very, very scary uh, going through Hurricane Jeanette because we literally thought we were going to lose our lives. Um, but it is really very encouraging to know that the present uh, government there um, really taking care of people. I've been in touch with my family. Uh, thank goodness they're all okay. Uh, my family on on the island, and for the most part, most of them now have their their water and the the power back. Uh, David, you know this is unusual for Barbados, as you said. It's the first one since 1955, but the region has been so hard hit over the last few years by these devastating hurricanes. And David, those of us in the diaspora, we are just so grateful, as I'm sure you are in the residents of Barbados, that we didn't get anywhere near a Cat 3, 4, or 5 uh, as such that hit, hit Barbuda, because Barbados, as flat as we are, without mountains, etc., really would have been devastating. But David, t make, make that connection with us, with other hurricanes that have been um, happen in the region and how it has the entire region economically and also the environmental concerns about these hurricanes and their strength. David Commission. Mm -hmm. Well, well, Margaret, it's not, it's not just hurricanes. Um, in addition to the hurricanes that are becoming increasingly violent as climate change progresses, um, there's also the, the volcano, La Soufrière, that erupted in St. Vincent a couple months ago. There is the flooding in Guyana and, and Suriname. Um, the highest rainfalls um, we have experienced this year in something like 40, 40 years. Um, there's the sargassum seaweed um, because of climate change. Um, large quantities of sargassum seaweed are being generated 
and are inundating you know several areas of the Caribbean disrupting tourism and, and fishing and fishing activities so the Caribbean is on the front line of the environmental crisis and you know so so many challenges are coming at us one after the other fortunately we had the good sense many years ago to come together and establish a regional um, institution, um, the Caribbean Disaster Emergency Management Agency. It's headquartered in Barbados. So we have a regional collective um, approach to dealing with, with, with disasters. We also had the good sense many years ago to establish the Caribbean Catastrophe Risk Insurance Facility, the CRIF, and, and we pioneered parametric insurance policies where once a disaster takes place, you don't have to wait um, weeks for loss of justice to come in and do the assessment of the damages. No. Um, once, once the insurance facility knows that you experience winds of a certain velocity, rainfall of a certain density, then there's an automatic calculation that X amount of damage is going to be done, and you get your insurance payment within days. So, but but the, those facilities, as admirable as, as they are, they cannot cover all of the damage. So yes, Barbados will get a payment from, from the CRIF, but it will it will not it will go nowhere to covering the the entire damage done to the country. So under our mechanism, other once one member state experiences a disaster, other member states will pitch in and help. But even that is not enough because we just don't have the resources and therefore we always appeal to the people, our people at home and in the diaspora um, to make a contribution to support um, the, re the repair efforts. And, and Barbados will be setting up a bank account, a fund. Um, uh, that, that information, I guess, will be available at least by, by tomorrow, what the bank details are. We're persons anywhere in the world would be able to make would be able to make a donation so we this this is how it is in the caribbean we have a disaster our regional institutions help um caricom member states governments help but we always need the additional assistance of our people at home and abroad Right, and we're sure that uh, Bajans who are listening um, across the country and in other parts of the world, uh, David Kamisiang, uh, will respond. And we will take responsibility here on Sojourner Truth to post the information of where people can make donations as soon as we get it on all of our social media platforms, um, including our website at, at So True Radio, um, Facebook. Instagram, uh, etc. So, uh, David Kamisiang, we are so grateful that there was no loss of, of life. There seems to not to have been uh, serious injuries as well. But before you, we go, you know, um, Barbados is one of those islands we depend so much on tourism you know, for our economy. And first it was COVID, then there was the dust from the volcano in St. Vincent, and now there is the hurricane. But um, the island and the government seems to be moving very, very quickly um, and effectively to address these challenges so that people could, don't cancel your reservations, et cetera, if you're going to the island of, of Barbados on, on holiday or to visit our friends and family, but to uh, keep 
that up. But David, just briefly, I know people are concerned about COVID, for example, and perhaps now maybe the impact given the hurricane and people living in shelters, et cetera. What can you tell us about the latest news on, on COVID, David? I know that wasn't our topic, so I put you a, a little bit on the spot, but I'm sure you know what's happening on the island. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes, of course. No, what what your what your listeners need to be aware of is that Barbados is one of the best organized countries in the world. So Barbados responds to any 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 challenge. Uh, for example, those houses we have already started the process of rebuilding those houses. We have three government agencies: the Urban Development Commission, Rural Development Commission, and National Housing Corporation already. Um, working, working on that. Barbados has handled COVID extreme, extremely well. We have rolled out a vaccination program. We have already, we have um, vaccinated more than half of the, more than half of the population, and um, and you know, no, that that program is proceeding. Um, tourism. You, you spoke about people being in shelters. No, Margaret, we are not putting people in shelters. People are accommodated. We have hotel rooms that are available because of the downturn in wow. hotels, in hotels and um, apartment hotel uh, apartment. So that's where government is accommodating people, um, not not any ramshackle shelter, in in proper in proper accommodations. And um, Barbados, we are relaunching tourism. Um, it, it is very promising for us because last year, when everybody in the world was turning their backs on the cruise cruise ships, Barbados hosted cruise ships. Um, we repatriated over 25,000 cruise ship passengers who have been stranded. And so a number of cruise ships have now switched to their home porting in Barbados. Uh, we pioneered the welcome stamp, the one-year welcome stamp. Where we, we, we encourage visitors to come not for two-week vacation, but to come and work in Barbados over an extended um, period of time. So Barbados is very much um, open for tourism. Um, COVID um, is is very much under control, and um, you know, and we we have relaxed uh, a lot of the restrictions because the numbers we have kept the numbers down remarkably well. Um, at the beginning of COVID, we built a new city north of the island, state of the art, and so we have always separated the COVID patients from the normal um, public health facilities of the country. We did a separation between the two. And, and, no, and yes, so what the, the point is that um, we, may be, we may be a so-called third world country or developing country, but we are a tough, well-organized, um, unified, unified nation. Right. And I mean, it's just been remarkable to see our prime minister, first woman prime minister. We are so very proud of her out on the front lines with the people in the communities that were hardest hit, knowing that she is in deep mourning of the sudden death of her brother uh, just a few days before the hurricane hit. So, But that's just mm -hmm. the spirit and the stamina of the people of, of, of Barbados. And I'm a proud Bajan, as you know, uh, David. So uh, yeah. thank you so very much for, for joining us and, and filling us in and, and all the best with all of your work and the recovery efforts. Thank you. Thank you very much, Margaret. It's a pleasure speaking on your program. Oh. Oh.
All righty. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And we are now going to uh, switch and turn our attention to something that's going on in Pennsylvania. There is a prisoner strike going on there. Um, people, our listeners in California may recall the California statewide prisoner hunger strike that happened um, several years back uh, around some of the same issues in terms of opposing uh, solitary confinement. Imprisoned people at the State Correctional Institution Phoenix in Montgomery County are carrying out a hunger strike over what human rights campaign and incarcerated people are pointing out as unjust, indefinite, and inhumane solitary uh, confinement. And I'd like to welcome our guest to uh, fill us in on what is happening. And we, we want to thank Payday Men's Network for al alerting us uh, to this and for Chandra Delaney of the Human Rights Network for her help with this segment. I'd like to welcome uh, Fariha Huraya organizer with the DC Mutual Aid Network, a collection of community organizations and individuals who pool their resources together to support each other. Um, Faria, welcome. Good morning. Okay, so um, tell us what is this about? Um, over uh, 20 incarcerated people, I understand, are taking part in the hunger strike. Uh, when did it start, and what can you tell us about their specific demands? Yeah, uh, so today, around 10, 9, are still on hunger strike. Initially, it was about 20 to 30 prisoners hunger striking. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the hunger strike mainly focuses that uh, PA, in particular, in the facility SCI Phoenix, has a new torturous uh, uh, unit called the IMU unit, which uh, intensive management unit, basically is a new name for um, solitary confinement. Is a new way of the DOC uh, locking up people indefinitely with no clear path for prisoners to understand the policy to figure out how they can actually complete certain programs to work their ways out of uh, this situation. Um, it, it has been about 100 days that this IMU unit has started. Um, multiple prisoners were transferred to SCI Phoenix facility, the IMU unit, in, including some of the Bond 17 prisoners from Delaware prison who were accused of the James Stevan prison uprising. Right. And, you know, I when the California prisoner hunger strike was going on, um, what came out is that we found out that the United Nations um, uh, Rapporteur on Torture had actually said that actually uh, 15 days or more in solitary confinement, and now they have this new fancy term, intense management unit, um, is the equivalent of torture and should not be allowed. Uh, so, uh, you know, tell us about that because, you know, I, we're wondering how long people are held in this intense um, management uh, units. Is it only this particular prison um, in Pennsylvania that has uh, such a unit or is this kind of like the latest, uh, the latest thing among people who are organizing our prisoners to give solitary confinement this new fancy name, but basically right. it's the same old torturous conditions. Right. Uh, um, 
yeah, SCI Phoenix and SCI Green, so I was told, will both have this new um, unit, IMU unit. Currently, they are supposed to receive five hours a week recreational time, which sometimes does not happen. Um, the phones miraculously stop working. Prisoners cannot speak to their loved ones. The kiosks stop working, or, or messages just don't come through. I mean, emails that take 10 days to come through, in particular when prisoners want to um, inform supporters or loved ones about their conditions. I also would like to uplift that two days ago, um, a prisoner um, at, at, at the pot called APOT committed suicide, and the prisoners are actually trying to find out the name of this prisoner uh, who was known to have mental health problems, which these conditions create mental health problems. Uh, they, they uh, Like the UN also stated, that this is what um, torturous conditions um, come, uh, come, come to. We are all human beings and we need uh, social interactions and we don't need to be locked up in cages. And this is very typical to the United States. Instead of um, rethinking incarceration in this country, we are coming up with new ways of locking people into cages. Right. And according to the Abolitionist Law Center, this intensive management unit at SCI Phoenix, it isn't even listed in any department handbook. It's not officially acknowledged by the um, corrections uh, department. And there is a news report about uh, Mr. Uh, Bramble, who has been held in solitary confinement for more than two years. That is way longer, something like 57 times longer than the UN uh, recommendation. So, you know, what has happened? I mean, are these, is this part of what the prisoners are challenging, uh, the length of time, but also just the conditions itself? This John Bramble, he's one of the men on the uh, mm -hmm. hunger strike, and he's saying they're only allowed to shower three times a week. And as you mm -hmm. say, five hours of recreation a week. So tell us about the conditions. Um, oh, yeah. I actually have a few words here from uh, Johnny. Uh, uh, we call him Bravo. He says, uh, I am you. Uh, I'm being housed at SCI Phoenix and IMU, which is an acronym for the Intensive Management Unit. All the while, POC is getting funding for this IMU as if it is actually fully functioning, when in reality, the DOC is getting just the funding. Um, there isn't even a policy that outlines what this program is or the purpose of this program. Myself and eight other prisoners were transferred here from Delaware on what is called the Interstate Compact. Delaware long-term solitary confinement has already been abolished and is considered to be cruel and unusual punishment. However, here in PA, um, we are uh, incarcerated under different conditions. So one of the one of the demands was, and the prisoners, uh, while they're hunger striking, we're actually still finding the time to laugh about this. They're like, we're actually starving ourselves for the DOC to explain to us what is the IMU, and could we please see uh, the handbook of the policy? Um, another prisoner, uh, Kane, actually uh, said the the central office finally admitted that they could potentially. Uh, hand out the IMU policy book this this week, but this has been promised to the prisoners before, and the promise was not fulfilled, so we will see what happens. 
Right, and apparently there's something like uh, 2,500 prisoners on average um, in the state of Pennsylvania um, that are confined in this way. So with the conditions, I mean, in terms of painting a picture for our listeners, that's pretty much 23 hours a day in a cell, isn't it? And really being able to cut off in so many ways from, from human contact. But, um, you know, Fariha, I'm always quite struck about the level of organizing and organization and political activism actually within prisons and among prisons. I mean, the California prisoner hunger strike was the largest um, Really, it was also a labor shortage, a labor strike, was the largest in U.S. history. And this was organized by people behind bars. So um, in the lead up to this particular hunger strike, apparently there was an uprising in 2017 in Delaware's largest prison. Tell us about that, because there is also a relationship between that incident and this particular um, strike of prisoners. Freya. Yes. Uh, I've, I've been um, a supporter, uh, a comrade to what is called the Van 17 since their trials began. Um, it was at James T. Vaughan, Smyrna, Delaware, an uprising. 17 individuals were accused of the, the, the rioting, the uprising of conspiracy. Throughout the uprising, a correctional officer uh, passed away. Um, what, what was really interesting to me, because I've, I've been to almost every trial, is that the state had turned uh, original uh, that they accused of uprising into their into their witnesses. So they had all these all these um, uh, star witnesses that they initially had accused of being part of the uprising and potentially um, what what led to the murder of the uh, correctional officer. Um, so this was a way of me getting to, I'm also with the D.C. Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee. So this was my first step in getting to know what were, you know, the Von 17 comrades. Um, shortly after that, they, they were all moved after the trials. They were all moved and spread around the PADOC. Um, and uh, I'm actually, you know, I'm, I'm amazed about the strength to the prisoners have started the hunger strike, and which which they did with other prisoners like um, Michael Riviera and Kane from New York. They all come together uh, to just shed light about the conditions in PADOC. Right, and and what about uh, support from uh, families? Um, we certainly know that a lot of the support, the justice work on behalf of prisoners, well done inside the prisons by jailhouse lawyers, uh, prisoners who train themselves uh, in, in, uh, as lawyers fundamentally, unofficially as lawyers, but also it's often, most often I'll have to say it's the women, uh, the wives, the sisters, the etc., who are out there fighting for justice, but also being in touch with their loved ones and trying to bring some dignity uh, to people who fundamentally are forced to live in these cages. How are the families... How are the families responding? Sure. Do you mind if I connect this? Hold on one second. Un individuo encarcelado en FCI, Phoenix State Correctional Institution. Esta llamada no es privada. Será grabada y podría ser monitoreada. 
Si cree que debería hacer una llamada privada, cuelgue y siga las instrucciones de otro para registrar este número como un número privado para aceptar cargos y dar su conocimiento. Gracias por usar Securus. Puede comenzar la conversación ahora. Hello. I think yes. Hello. So we're we're having a call to inside the prison right now. Hello. This is Margaret Prescott. Please tell us your name and and um, are you a hunger striker or what are the conditions there, and what are your demands? My name is Rowers. Uh, a lot of people know me as uh, Ruck. I'm at SCI Phoenix right now. Uh, the hunger strike is taking place for a number of reasons, mainly they. Mainly, they suppose they implemented a program that would allow people to be released from solitary confinement. They continue to put out different programs under the guise of this is how you make it out. That's never the case. So people can complete these programs and continue to be locked down indefinitely in solitary confinement. So we're trying to force them to put mandatory language within the handbooks and within the programs that allow no excuse, no back doors, no loopholes for them to say, okay, even though you completed it, you still have to be locked down. Right. Yes. And, and um, situation mm-hmm. going on where, carry on. Go on. Oh, we also have a situation going on where within the Department of DOC in Pennsylvania, Department of DOC in Delaware, they implemented a backdoor contract to allow my comrades, Vaughn 17 comrades that were uh, accused of the uprising in Delaware, Smyrna Prison, they released everybody else to go back home, and they opened up a backdoor deal for us to stay here and be locked down into conditions that they have told their supporters back in Delaware that they no longer support, that they're a part of this whole progressive regime and how they're trying to transition out of the inhumane treatment of solitary confinement, but they have locked us down into a state that they know still goes by these antiquated racist oppressive treatment and lockdowns. So we're trying to fight against that also. Right, Um, and how how are you holding up the other prisoners who are on hunger strike? I remember in, in working and supporting the California prisoners who were on hunger strike some years back, there were lots of attempts of retaliation against the prisoners who were on hunger strike and even after uh, the hunger strike. So any examples of retaliation going on and how are people's health and, and well-being holding up? And also tell us about support that you may be getting from families of the hunger strikers well the, the support the supporters came out strong force that's the most important thing at this point the supporters came out strong force a lot of people have put a lot of eyes on the situation so esta está por cobrar de SCI Phoenix if State Correctional they Institution esta llamada puede they haven't been able to do, get away with things without us being able to get the word out but the retaliation has been what it is it's For instance, recently I just was notified that the legal mail that I had coming in that was support of a civil suit, like three days ago, was refused by the prison. But they won't tell me who refused it. They're trying to, they have listed us as being a part of 
a group demonstration strike, which allows them to take everything from you. So they moved in that regards where they try to make it like a, you know, anti-prison. Well, of course we are anti-prison, but they try to make it seem as if we're organized and demonstrating in a way that's causing a threat to the institution. So they separated us. They won't allow us to speak to each other. They separated the yard so we can't go out and speak to each other. They um, locked one of our comrades, scientific, inside the infirmary away from the rest of us. So we can't, we don't actually know what's going on with him. Um, couple, couple of comrades due to epilepsy and sickle cell anemia were denied their medication. Uh, that's the fight. And most yeah, recently, that's... most recently, mm-hmm. the most, one of the most recently things that happened less than probably, I want to say, three, four days ago another inmate committed suicide, well, at least that's what they're telling us, committed suicide um, back here less than three, four days ago. So wow. it's just, it's, 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 it's nonstop. The retaliation it's, it's non-stop. non-stop. The retaliation ball is FBI, Phoenix State Correctional Institution. Esta llamada puede ser grabada y monitorada. And to our listeners, this is what happens when you're trying to speak directly to a prisoner. I know we're going to be cut off in a minute. We are going to have to end it there. But I'm wondering if we, I'll be in touch with um, Fariha to see if we could get some regular reports from you. Um, so our listeners across the nation would find out what's going on on the inside. So let's work on that and see if that's possible. Okay? Absolutely. If you can put together... If you could put together, I have a couple comrades here, and we'll be able to make sure that our phone calls line up with okay. certain times. Now, they're going to try to box us out. Y'all know how that go. They're going to try to, 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 to marginalize our voice. But if y'all give us a specific time and you let her know, then we'll try our best to be able to have somebody speak directly to y'all when, it, when the time comes. We will absolutely, absolutely do that. You take care. All the best to you all. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for standing up for all of us. All righty. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Uh, We had a surprise. We were able to uh, speak directly to one of the prisoner hunger strikers. So this segment ran a little bit long. We're going to take our short station break now. And then coming up, the Surfside condo collapse. What does that have to do with the crisis, with the environment? Stay with us. We'll be right back. I could tell you I was ageless. But I know you see the light. I could tell you I'm immune to everything, but that's a lie. Dust don't turn to flowers. Skies don't disappear. But I've seen truth done by one. 
one of my favorites. That's One Republic Truth to Power. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check out our website at sotrueradio.org, our community calendar, lots of other stories. If you're a member of Facebook, like and friend us on Facebook, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at sotrueradio. And we are heard nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And within the United States today, we'd like to give a shout out to all of our listeners who are incarcerated, who are in prisons across these United States, including the prisoner hunger strikers in Pennsylvania. We do know a number of prisoners do listen to our show. They do. We do hear uh, get regular letters as well. And internationally, I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in our island nation of Barbados, just recovering from a hit from Hurricane Elsa. Uh, we are, and that's also related to global warming and, and the um, environment. Now, search and rescue efforts at the site of Florida condo building collapse have grown even more urgent as a tropical storm Elsa barrels towards the state right now. It's hitting the Florida Keys even as we are on the air. Tropical storm Elsa has not hit Florida in full force, but rain has begun falling. And some of the obstacles to rescue include fires, um, building debris, etc. But despite the weather conditions, responders on the site um, are putting on uh, biohazard suits and continuing uh, the search. Now, all of you likely know by now that on Thursday, June 24, 2021, a 12-story beachfront condominium in the Miami suburb of Surfside partially uh, collapsed. Champlain Towers South, which included a penthouse and underground parking garage, um, just fell to the ground. At least 28 people thus far that we know of were killed. 11 people were injured, according to CNN. 117 people, as of right now, are still unaccounted for and rescue operations uh, continuing. Now, we're hearing quite a lot in the news about uh, the building was delinquent with its 40-year recertification, and um, there's a similar tower that uh, was built around the same time that was ordered to be evacuated. But one has to look at some of the broader issues in Miami and South Florida region that are conne- connected uh, to climate change, but also looking at the uh, is- the development industry and how much attention uh, they are paying on where the type of land that they build on and the type of threat that that might be to folks. So I'd like to actually just go directly uh, to our guest, Tina uh, Githard, an environmental journalist who covers international climate negotiations, domestic energy policy, and sea level rise. Her work has been published by the American Prospect Grist, The Progressive, The Nation, Sierra, and Washington Monthly. Her article, The Surfside Condo Collapse is an Environmental Wake-Up Call, was published last week by EchoWatch. Tina, thank you for joining us. Oh, Margaret, it's so great to be with you again. Thanks for having me. Sure, good to have you back. Now, uh, Tina, uh, what I want to talk with you about is something that I'm not hearing a whole heck of a lot about in uh, regular coverage of this uh, condo collapse. But first of all, 
this this condo is on a barrier island. Tell us what a barrier island is, what it is made up of, and the role that it plays in the for or in the environment. Tina. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the question. Um, barrier islands. I mean, they're they're not as common on the west coast, um, but I realize you broadcast nationally <laughs> and internationally. They're islands that are that are elongated. They typically run north south parallel to a shore. And um, Surfside is on a barrier island, and they have this crucial function. They buffer the coastline from Miami that sits behind Surfside. They buffer it from the waves, but they absorb the shock of those waves themselves. And barrier islands consist of sand, and in absorbing those shocks and consisting of sand, they they move, and that's a really important part of barrier islands. They, they can move towards the land. They can move away from it, and that means that they're really risky um, for construction. There's a, a professor I quoted, um, interviewed for my article, Oren Pilkey, who um, is a geologist, and he's written like almost three dozen books on um, sea level rise. That's his, his area of expertise, and he's published the only book on barrier islands. And he said um, in the interview I did with him, he said, quote, barrier islands are among the most dynamic land features. Uh, and, and for that reason, he said they are the most risky to build on. So, you know, I, I just think that that component is crucial. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the other thing, too, is the, you know, the history of sinkholes in, in, in the region, but also that that part of, of Florida you mentioned in your article consists of limestone. So uh, tell us about that and the significance that between it, it, it basically is a, a kind to me, a sort of glorified sandbar, right? And then you have limestone and you have these developers building these huge condominiums right on top of all of this. So tell us about the issue with limestone and, and the sinkholes. Yeah, the, I mean, the limestone and the sinkholes that you mentioned, those are so key. They keep coming up in interviews, and it's an interesting thing with the sinkholes because people say, well, you know, people are talking about the limestone and the sinkholes. We have sinkholes all over the place in, in, in southern Florida. And that might just signal not that, hey, it's so common that it makes it okay, but, hey, it's so common and a problem that we might want to reconsider building in southern Florida. The thing with southern Florida is it consists of limestone. Um, and, and, and limestone is kind of like the Swiss cheese of geology. It ha you know, it just has holes throughout it. Um, and when I interviewed Pilkey, he said that this is the most permeable and porous foundation, Miami limestone. It's, it's a specific kind of geology. And the thing about it is it allows the salt water to get in. It allows it to intrude. So when you're hearing in the coverage, you know, uh, on, you know, whether it's newspaper, radio, television, whatever, when you hear people keep talking about the corrosive effects of the salt water on the building, and that collapse you mentioned um, of, of the garage, right, the columns and the pillars that had been cracking. The salt water was, is what people think helped to corrode those pillars. And the way the salt water got in, to, you know, one issue is, is this limestone, is this Swiss cheese. It really soaks up salt water like a sponge. So there's this issue of an increased risk of flooding from underground in the entire region. And then that's compounded by sea level rise, which you know I can I can talk about too. But I think we really have to think about you know 
with this whole issue, we need to think about environmental factors as threat multipliers, like how does one thing impact the other thing? Right. So tell us about that then in terms of sea level rise, because I'm um, reading again your article, really informative. People should check it out on Echo Watch, that the concrete that was used in some of the buildings in, in South Florida, it can be sometimes mixed with salt water or sand, right? So just draw the line with us with the sea level rise and what is happening uh, even in the building structures and, and the dangers of them. But also Florida itself is, is really facing very serious threat as a result of sea level rise. So tell us about that, Tina. Yeah, the limestone and the sea level rise really come together in a couple of different ways. And I think these are really important to consider um, in terms of some of the strategies that are already underway in order to deal with sea level rise. Um, there's two really expensive plans that are afoot. There's a $4 billion um, master plan that's trying to build a seawall around the city's roads, um, uh, the infrastructure there, you know, often... Um, Often in cities, you'll have things like airports, um, you know, water, sewage treatment, water treatment facilities, um, power plants located close to water. So they have a $4 billion project to build a seawall. They also have a $6 billion project by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to build a different seawall. And these are ridiculous projects because of the water being able to go under because of the limestone that I mentioned. But they're also ridiculous because of the level of sea level rise that you're asking about that Miami is facing. So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is this UN body of scientists from around the world, in their most recent report, um, there's another one coming out next year, in their most recent report, uh, the so-called fifth assessment report, they predicted about roughly two feet of sea level rise by 2050 and about um, three feet by 2100. They're known to be really conservative. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration says there's going to be about six and a half feet um, by 2050. Now, Miami sits at about six feet above sea level on average. That already indicates it's going to be underwater. Much of the city is a mere two to three feet above sea level. Surfside sits at zero feet, zero, so just even with the water. So that means already right now, not the future, any kind of storms that come in, inundate and flood the area's buildings, definitely their basements with salt water. Um, there's this thing called sunny day flooding, um, and there's been Union of Concerned Scientists has said there's about you know 237 days out of the year, so most of it where sunny day flooding happens. Sunny day flooding is when there's there's not the flooding isn't because of rain, it's because of this bubbling up. Right. So, you know, there's yeah. I mean, there's scientists that really advocate like retreating from the coastline. I mean, Pilkey is one of them. He says nobody wants to talk about it, but you know, he said Florida when I interviewed him, he said Florida is the most endangered state in the nation from sea level rise and Miami is the most endangered major city. So he's like, you know, putting these high-rise buildings immediately next to the eroding beach is just not irresponsible, not only irresponsible, he said it also prevents a flexible response to sea level rise. And flexible is, you know, one where you can just move back. Right. And it, it does seem to me as though it really is putting the value of, of human life and life really 
um, devaluing it and putting profit and making money over it because the Union of Concerned Scientists, as you indicated, they're, they're saying that within two to three decades, Miami could be flooded over 200 times a year. And that uh, while most of Miami as six feet above sea level on average, that for a lot of the city, it's only uh, two to three feet. Uh, it seems so it's it's you know putting profit over over people but over the environment because these barrier the environmental role of barrier islands seems to be to protect uh, the coastline to just you know work with nature in terms of creating areas of protected waters where wetlands may flourish etc they weren't they're not there for some developer to make mega millions by building these huge, you know, apartment buildings, condos on, on top of it without proper regard for human life or the impact on, on nature. So give us your final thoughts on this, where people could get information and some of the things you think people could do who are concerned about these kinds of issues. Tina, yep. Gary Tart. Yeah, thanks for that. I mean, I think definitely we're going to see, you know, what we're going to see in the wake of, um, you know, the, the Surfside condo collapse is some building code reforms. I'm not quite sure what they're going to be. But, you know, after Hurricane Andrew, I mean, you started at the top of the hour with, you know, the, with Elsa coming through right now and just the impact it's having um, across the Caribbean. And my heart really goes out to the people in Barbados and other islands along the way, Cuba, that have been really affected. Um after Hurricane Andrew, which devastated a region just south of Miami, the building codes were radically revamped, um, and that was in 1992. So, you know, I talked to another um, professor of sustainable development and geography, and he said this is really a wake-up call. Like, with this sea level rise, you know, he said we really we need 21st century engineering and 21st century policies for 21st century environmental factors. And I think that's spot on. I think, you know, it'll take a while to find the reasons um, for the condo collapse. The environmental factors, you know, may or may not be implicated, but just having those buildings there in the first place is, is not a good idea. So I think that's really something we're going to have to consider. I think ratcheting down CO2 emissions, which doesn't get mentioned in the media coverage of this issue enough, um, you know, I think that's crucial. And then just retreat from the coastline. Absolutely. A crisis, environmental happening all over the place in parts of Southern California. Uh, temperatures are going to be 111 up to 117 in Portland, uh, Oregon, all the way up in Canada, uh, Seattle, this heat dome. I mean, in, in even in places like Norway, Lapland, in Finland, Russia, there's a heat wave going on. So, Tina, clearly a crisis happening with our environment that we have to pay attention to. So we thank you for your work as an environmental journalist and all of the other work you do drawing our attention to these issues. Thank you so very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. All righty. Uh, well, we are out of time. I'd like to thank all of today's guests. Uh, today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our audio engineer today, Gary Baca, our assistant producer, Romero Funes. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. And you all, please remember to stay safe. <laughs>